You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. Governor Greg Abbott joining us again on the Sergio Show. One pill kills campaign. So tell me about that, Governor. Sergio, this is like one of the most catastrophic things we've ever seen, and that is this fentanyl that's blowing across the open border that Biden created. And uh, this two tiny milligrams of fentanyl is enough to kill someone. Uh, And it's been catastrophic in what has happened uh, in Texas as well as the United States. Uh, In Texas alone last year, almost 1,700 people lost their lives. In the United States, about 75,000 people lost their lives. Uh, For the ages of people between 18 and 45, fentanyl is now the leading cause of death. Texas is stepping up to try to do something about it because Joe Biden is not. Uh, And what we've done through the Texas law enforcement alone over the past year, we've seized enough fentanyl to kill every man, woman and child in the entire United States of America. And so this is overflowing what the drug cartels are bringing into our state. uh, And we are trying to get it under control as much as possible. But let's go back. None of this would be needed. If we had in place today uh, the same border security uh, strategies that we had in place just two and a half years ago, this is all on Joe Biden and his lack of border security. With the legislative session coming up next year, Governor, and I know some of the medical community, they they wring their hands um, uh, with this situation. Do you think we're approaching the time when maybe from the state level, you know, kind of like they did with those defibrillators some years back, uh, perhaps, I don't know, at all schools and more buildings, put some of those anti-fentanyl, anti-opiate, whether Narcan, is is that what it's called, uh, to try to save people's lives, maybe put it in in, in more places as a result of how prolific this stuff is. It seems to be all over the place. Right. And so this Narcan works extraordinarily effectively. Uh, I've talked with two law enforcement officers uh, that, that they were uh, they, they pulled over a vehicle that had uh, drugs in it. They did not know that fentanyl was in the vehicle. And then uh, when, when when they were inspecting the drug, uh, they just encountered the fentanyl uh, and it completely knocked them out and they almost lost their lives. They were saved only because Narcan was available. So for one, we need to make sure that law enforcement officers who are potentially exposed to this on any particular day, uh, that they will have Narcan available to them. Then second, uh, we need to determine uh, other locations in the state of Texas where uh, people may uh, get exposed to or or take a pill uh, that has uh, fentanyl on it and make sure that we have uh, Narcan available there. And so something that I strongly propose is for the state of Texas to provide the funding to provide Narcan uh, where it it is needed and where it can be used. Uh, One quick thing, Sergio, that I didn't mention earlier, just so your audience understands, and that is the way that the fentanyl typically comes across, and that is the drug cartels will lace it onto another type of pill that looks like a pill that you would get at a pharmacy. And so people who take uh, this pill that looks like it comes from a pharmacy, uh, take it innocently, not knowing that fentanyl is on there. Uh, and that's why it turns out that one pill can kill because someone takes a drug, they have no idea they're taking fentanyl. Jeez. And they what? They think they're purchasing a painkiller on the streets when, when it winds up being laced with, with this thing. And you talk about the 
the eternal painkiller. My goodness. Governor Greg Abbott, my guest right now. I understand you had a sit-down with a sheriff's group up in Corpus. How'd that go? What was all that about? Well, that actually is coming up this afternoon. I'm headed to Corpus okay. Christi uh, later on this afternoon and then down uh, once again to the RGV uh, later on tonight. Uh, but in Corpus Christi, I'm, I'm meeting with sheriffs uh, ranging from the Houston area all the way down to uh, the border area where we're going to be talking about uh, ways and s- strategies uh, that we can try to do even more uh, as we try to hold the line uh, while Biden is opening up the border even more. And some of the stories that these local sheriffs are having to deal with, whether it be in uh, Victoria or even up in the Houston area or elsewhere, uh, is just extraordinary. You know, so some people, uh, they just don't pay enough attention to the border and they don't realize uh, how widespread this is. Uh, we, have, we have a sheriff uh, who's asking for additional mobile morgues uh, to put dead bodies in. Uh, because they have so many dead bodies they find in their county. Uh, they don't have any place to put them. Uh, this, this, the things that are taking place, you know, the people in the rest of the country have no idea. And so it's just shocking when we hear Mayor Adams up in New York uh, complain when he gets uh, 10,000 migrants bus to a city. Uh, and they are clueless about the dangers and hazards of this open border policy that we have to deal with every single day, and it's the sheriffs who are on the front line of trying to protect their communities uh, in dealing with the consequences of these open border policies. Governor Greg Abbott, our guest on the Sergio Show. Speaking of Mayor Eric Adams up in New York City, all right, so have you had a chance to speak with him, maybe contemplated talking with him, say, hey, man, uh, this is a national problem. You're blaming the wrong guy. You're complaining to the wrong guy. You need to call the commander or so-called commander-in-chief, he's the one who opened up the borders. Uh, help me fix the border situation. Otherwise, you're going to get more buses. Have you maybe considered talking to him directly and saying, you got to go back to the root of the problem, and that's Joe Biden. So we have actually invited him to come down and see the border for himself firsthand. But uh, I will tell you this on along the lines of what you're talking about. Uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, has uh, repeatedly been reaching out to the White House asking for more help uh, and is is now doing exactly what you're talking about, saying, listen, this is a national issue. Get this. And so uh, Mayor Adams has, I don't know what the number is, maybe 15,000 migrants uh, so far, and, and they are demanding $1 billion for them to be able to respond to it. Listen, we deal with that many people in, in one or two days. Uh, if they get a billion dollars uh, for what they have to deal with, Texas should get that same amount with a couple of more zeros behind it uh, for Texas to be able to deal with it. But I, I'll tell you something else that came out uh, last week or two that was very interesting, and that is the uh, governor of New York and the governor of Illinois, where we're also uh, sending migrants up to Chicago, they are both asking the president of the United States, and they're both Democrats. They're both asking the president of the United States to get involved in this, uh, saying that this, this is a national problem and it needs a national solution, uh, which is exactly what it is. And to make sure your audience understands, the, the United States Constitution says that it's Congress that has the responsibility to pass laws concerning immigration. It's the president of the United States that has the responsibility to enforce those immigration laws. We have both the Congress that's failing to do its job, and we have the president failing to do its job. And it's just wrong 
uh, that has to be local sheriffs having to do their job. How goes the busing program? Are you getting any donations to help pay for these charter buses? I know you set that up you know, on your website some days back. We are, and I should have looked up that number before I called you, but uh, my recollection is uh, the, the last number I saw was something around $400,000. And so the, the numbers are beginning to add up uh, where we're getting donations. But remember this, uh, the amount that we're spending to bust these migrants up to New York and Chicago uh, is a drop in the bucket uh, compared to what it would cost to uh, deal with them uh, here in the state of Texas. And that's proven by the fact that with just you know, 10 or 15,000 uh, migrants up in New York, uh, they need a billion dollars to respond to it, uh, to take care of, of the education, the health care, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so it shows how extraordinarily expensive it is. And again, no one in these other parts of the United States that have not had to deal with this. They've never even understood how much it does cost uh, for these uh, open border policies. Right. Now they're learning what Texas is having to come out of pocket to spend to take care of all along. Governor Greg Abbott, my guest, and I have you for just a few seconds, Governor. You got Chicago, New York, D.C. You can't, You thinking about any other cities? Send these buses to? Oh, there, there's always more on the list. Remember this, and, and that is that the cities that we are sending them to are self-identified as sanctuary cities. And that means that they, they've advertised and, and promoted. Yeah, they want to help. Uh, they're more than happy, well, happy to take in people like this. And so uh -huh. uh, we will be looking at others across the United States. More power to you, Governor. Great idea. Congratulations on this program. And I hope it pays off. And you know, we got to wake up this country to this problem. Uh, big hug and a kiss to Miss Sessie. Good to talk to you again, Governor. Take care. This is the Sergio Show. I don't know about you, but I really like the new lighting of this generation, those those LED lights, the white lights, it bright lights. It seemed to you know, go to, you know, brighten up every single corner, nook and cranny in a, in a room. I, I just like those lights. But something I never thought about before is, are those lights maybe affecting, you know, sleep or nature? There was some write-up recently in a study done in, in Europe that this new lighting technology, uh, they studied it in Europe, they're saying it's having a negative effect, not only in, in seeing the, the stars at night in some big cities and other communities, but also in sleep patterns for, for fowl and for animals. Dr. Scott Hainan, Healthy Living Pro, my guest. What do you make of that study out in Europe saying that all these white lights and blue lights, all, all this stuff is having a negative effect on what they see as, as, you know, negative effect on nature and its sleeping patterns. Yeah, well, good morning, Sergio. And first, let me let me help by bringing a little clarity about speaking to light in general. <clears throat> first of all, you need to understand what light is and, and how light affects us. So let's talk about frequencies first. That seems to be, you know, what most people are familiar with. The higher the frequency of the light, actually the less penetrative it is because they're longer waves and they're slower waves. Whereas when you get into the lower frequencies lights, they're shorter waves and they have much more, they're higher in energy, so they hit harder. So when you're talking about the old, you remember the old fashioned incandescent lights, well see those were higher in frequency, so they were less stimulative to brain. Okay. But when you get LEDs, which can be a good thing, they're considered blue light. Now the sun is considered blue light. So obviously when you wake up in the morning, you know that you go out, the sun's hitting you and it, triggers off mechanisms in your brain, 
and it starts, you know, decreasing your melatonin so that your body can wake up and cortisol starts. And, and as you go on through the day, toward the end of that day, that cortisol should start to wane. That's your stress hormone. The stress hormone actually should start to wane. Then there's a switch when that sun goes over the horizon and darkness hits. You have something called the pineal gland, which is initiated by the hypothalamus in your brain, and it makes a chemical called or a hormone called melatonin. Now, that melatonin then puts you into the nice, deep sleep cycles. So there's, you know, different phases of sleep, and so you go through phase one, two, and three, you're getting deeper and deeper until finally you reach that REM sleep. And then when you get in that deep sleep, through those phases, we call it healing sleep. We call it restful sleep. So at the end of the night, when you wake up, you're refreshed, your tissues have healed, mentally you've recovered, and you're ready, boom, to go out in the sunlight again and to be stimulated, okay? Now, that's perfect scenario, but here's the problem. When the sun goes over the horizon, we like to use lights because we still want to stay up. So we used to use candles or kerosene, and even incandescent, they're kind of lower frequencies, and there wasn't really a problem. But the new LEDs, remember, lower frequency, higher energy, more stimulation to brain. So you're giving your brain a huge stimulation, and you're telling it it's still daylight. So what happens is it shuts off that pineal gland and says, no, we're not making melatonin, so you don't go into the deep stages of sleep. So even though you sleep, you don't rest. Now, when you do that night after night, your body begins to get in a state of disrepair, and that's when all of the health challenges start. That European study on those these brighter lights, these LED lights and blue lights, and I, I don't know if it maybe it begs another study on their part because I think it's just an intelligent guess on their part where they say that, oh, this blue light might have uh, or might lead to behavioral, uh, or behavior pattern changes or for animals, from cows to you know, insects, moths, bats, um, and might ne- negatively affect nature. But I, I'm, I'm guessing they'll need a, a new study on this because I, mean, I, I don't hear or see anything related to all this. And I figure you know, there might be a fix to this. Maybe you don't put like blue light glasses on cows or, or birds, but maybe a little extra melatonin in the feed and the bird seed. <laughs> I don't know. What do you make of all this concern that it's negatively affecting nature? Yeah, well, it, and it is. It can affect nature. Obviously, we're, we're geared the same way. And so when you're telling, uh, you know, an animal, whatever, you're stimulating them at higher, you know, higher place. They're being stimulated in a different way that's not in their natural environment. So everything in brain is run by frequencies. I mean, even your brain waves from gammas to betas to alpha, theta, deltas, that's how we function. Gammas, you know, your focus. Betas, you're, you know, when you're trying to mull or you're trying to do complex. Alpha, you know, it's, your, it's kind of the balancing your brain. Theta is creative. Delta sleep. Well, these animals, their ranges are smaller. And so, you know, we're, we're pretty deep as humans because we have great understanding. Well, animals, they're, 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 their processes are shorter and smaller. So when you stimulate them with light, you're stimulating primitive brain, and so of course you're going to stimulate behavior because you're stimulate the primitive brain that's inside yeah, of them. I, so eventually, we'll probably see maybe animals acting in a way they shouldn't. Don, now again, a lot yeah. is in theory. Yeah, <laughs> so. you know, I was going to say I, I, all these reports. I say, and I called you on because I, I want to toss this around with you for just a few seconds. I got sure. about thirty seconds left. 
I don't. I, th- I think we're just making much out of nothing. Look, I'm looking at my iPhone, like all night long, several times, and I fall asleep no problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like blue light, blue light will keep you awake. No, it doesn't. I fall, I fall asleep. In fact, it's it's going through news articles and reading. I get sleepy. Bam, lights, <laughs> lights out. I, I don't know. It just it seems to me like we're making something out of nothing, what? Doc. Just final let, thought. Let me show, yeah. show this one. And it is because your brain is what we call very plastic, which means it tolerates stimulation very well. But especially when I work with depressed people, people with neural anxiety. Okay. And so these lights stimulate them too much, and it causes them to crash sometimes. Got it. And it keeps that loop going. Okay? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for folks that are yeah, sleep deprived. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Dr. Scott Hainan, my guest. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Uh, uh, welcome to the show, Robert Messer, who I understand is a pioneer in IP, you know, internet-based security cameras. And as I tried last hour, I was explaining to you, I, I want to know if these doorbell cameras that are connected via internet and Wi-Fi to other cameras in the porch and inside the house. I want to know if those IP, those base cameras, wireless technology cameras, I want to know if they are safe from hackers. And Robert Messer, you as a pioneer in this industry, what say you, brother? Is all this Wi-Fi stuff secure? And if not, how do we secure it? Morning, Sergio. Yeah. You know, as a company that's been selling to wholesale installers security devices for 20 years, when wireless cameras and you know uh, door stations came out, I was really excited for them because they seemed to really simplify things to, for installation. Uh, in practice, what has happened over the last years is that the uh, because they're so ubiquitous, people found ways to jam them. In the beginning, these jammers always existed conceptually wireless. We always knew that wireless can be jammed. But they were expensive and nobody had them, so the risk for a home wasn't really there. Now, people can go on the Internet and they can buy jammers and the off devices for very little money almost anywhere. So now the risk is much higher. Uh, <clears throat> now, you would ask me, what can we do, right? And hey, Can I press the pause with the button with you real quick, Robert? Because when you say that people can attain or individuals with nefarious intent can attain these jammers. When you say jammers, you're talking about something that they flip a switch that turns on and it disconnects the camera from the internet, hence you far, far away from your house. There's no image, right? You can't see any of the images on your cameras. That, that's the gist of it, right? That's that's the gist of it, okay. exactly. All right. Yeah. So how do we protect? What do we and, do? Yeah. So one, one way that people can protect themselves <clears throat> that's really easy is most of these wireless devices when uh, can can have an additional SD card that you can put inside that records locally. What that means is to the people is that when when somebody breaks in, they mostly will on first you know on homes they'll 
they'll always see that there's nobody there. Nobody wants to get caught, right? So that usually happens when you're not there. And so it's it's bad enough if it does happen. But, you know, when you're not there, you can't see either, right? So whatever you would see, you're not going to be seeing. But it's still recorded. So when you come back, when you find out what happens, mm. at least you have the, 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 the identification possibility on yeah. those videos, which was one of the things that you really wanted. Yeah. Uh, for homes, I'm actually not that worried about the security because I don't think most of the robbers that are just, you know, home robberies are typically done sort of on the, in the spur of the moment when somebody sees an opportunity, an open door or a garage open, things like that, they'll come in. Mm -hmm. They're not really prepared. What's really dangerous is for companies because companies, the people that break in companies to steal the tires, the phones, the devices that they have there, they can get a lot more money. They will come there with trucks and prepared, and they have those tools. They'll see a sign outdoors that says whatever wireless, whatever system, and they know exactly what equipment they need <clears throat> and what things they can do to uh, disable that. So there, there's a lot more risk there. And for those companies, in order to prevent being jammed or their security cameras and their surveillance system being jammed, is there something that blocks that jamming device, or how do you how do you protect your assets? Yeah, there's a couple of things. There's there's three things I would say. Well, first of all, uh, for commercial businesses, you know, and for anybody, it's always safer to go wired, right? Uh, all right. Then, if you're going wireless, you know, you can go with five gigahertz devices. There, you can find them. They're actually a lot safer. And third, for companies. I would actually use a wired alarm system and then because people do want to see what's going on add a direct to cloud camera from you know that has a technology like alarm ready that actually are wired you put them in the ceiling they immediately connect to the cloud they're secured from the camera to the cloud and from the user's phone to the cloud with two-factor authentication and everything but they're wired and they always work and they detect the alarm system so that you you can basically universally connect them with any alarm system. And when an alarm goes off, within a couple of seconds, the user, the owners, the managers will actually get a SMS and they can see what's happening at their place. Robert Masters, a pioneer in IP, you know, internet-based security cameras, trying to get you some solutions, protect your, yourself, protect your business, your home, as some of these hackers might be taking down your internet-based camera systems. And before I let you go, brother, since you are a pioneer in this type of technology, hmm. are you still, is your company, that you, you founded this company called ABP Tech with all this technology. Are you still working that day-to-day -day or did you retire already? No, I have not retired. I'm still working day-to-day. -day. I'm actually really uh, excited uh, about, you know, our, you know, working with our integrators and resellers and partners and providing them the new cloud technology that's out there, uh, yeah, you know, from companies like IP TechView uh, that they can use to actually create much better solutions in a much more simple way, but without those wireless risks. And completely from right field, man, I know you weren't expecting this question, but I got to ask you, I have a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I suspect that... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, parents, any mom or dad tuning in right now might be asking the same question. I'd love my kiddo to maximize his, her time at school and learn more about this type of wireless technology, Internet technology. What would you recommend that parents do in order to start their kids on this path to become experts in Internet, 
in you know software systems like this that that are now everything to us and definitely will will control uh, absolutely everything in, in the near future. They they need to be experts in this for you know their career sake, but also for our national security protection sake. What what path do they need to take in school in order to learn all this? I think one of the great yeah. So I think that definitely school is super important, right? Uh, get into some STEM type things where there is computer science, some kind of programming. The other thing people can do is get the kids something like a Raspberry Pi, right? They're not expensive and they're cool. They can actually play with them. They can do lots of stuff. They can start programming games. They can learn Python. And they, it's, it's probably the best thing for them to do. Uh, they can start researching online. They can start making their own games, and that's really going to fascinate them. And and they can learn wireless. They can learn everything because these Raspberry Pis have little wireless adapters and stuff like that. So they become tinkerers and they start discovering how everything works. I'm going online looking for what you're telling me because you tell me Raspberry Pi. I'm thinking. Mmm, cherry pie. That's all, all I'm thinking is food. <laughs> Ra- yeah, I like to eat it too, right? <laughs> Give me some cream with that. With the cream. the <laughs> raspberry pie is, is a board. It's a board to, that you can tinker with yeah. for electronics, a like board. a computer board. They're about the size of the palm of your hand, right? Uh, there's different price ranges, some from $50 to like 140 depending on how much box comes around it and the power supplies and all, all right. that. Uh, they're super easy. You just can pl- you take an old monitor from work. Right, that you know, it's small, the smaller ones that mom doesn't like anymore. Right, gives it to the kid. You can put the cable into the VGA or, or the HDMI port or the, even the TV. Right, and a keyboard. You can even do wireless, and you got your own computer. But this computer basically has all open wires, little connectors, and there's so much information out there of how it works that the kid actually gets into. He becomes literally his own computer guru. Like probably after a year of playing with something like that. Thank you, Robert. Learned something new with you today. Robert Messer, he's an expert when it comes to those IP-based security systems. This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Might child predators be using the pictures and video of your kids that you're sharing with loved ones, with friends, with grandma and grandpa? Well, let's find out. An expert in child predators, also a survivor of child sex abuse. I welcome to the program Jenna Quinn. Ms. Q, appreciate your time. I want to tell give you a chance to tell folks a bit more about yourself. Tell us about a little bit about your story and what is Jenna's Law? Yes, thank you for having me this morning. I um, am a survivor like so many others out there 
It's estimated one in four girls and one in six boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. Um, So my story is similar to, you know, millions of other survivors. I was sexually abused for many years by um, a very close family friend. And many times that's how this crime works. Over 90% of the time, a child is abused by someone that they know and they trust. So stranger danger is really only 10% of most uh, child abuse cases. And um, I'm very grateful that my perpetrator is still in prison to this day. And I have been able, for the last 18 years now, I started advocating when I was a teenager on raising awareness and prevention, teaching body safety and training mandatory reporters on how to specifically, you know, recognize um, and intervene and respond to child sexual abuse since, um, you know, the generations before me didn't really have conversations around this. And so Jenna's Law is named after me as a part of my story where education would have prevented this from happening for as long as it went on. And so Governor Perry, our former governor in Texas, signed uh, the Jenna's Law in 2009, and it is for public schools, pre-K through 12th grade, to train on um, the warning signs, uh, body safety of child sexual abuse specifically in a preventative manner, and then also it includes the training for uh, the school staff on um, how to recognize and how to report if a child has been through this. And now we have over half the country that has passed uh, a form of um, Jenna's Law prevention education and now federal legislation in Washington, D.C. that is halfway through the process called the Jenna Quinn Law. Expert in child predators, Jenna Quinn, my guest, staggering just to try to wrap your head around those figures that that you told me. One in four girls, one in six boys, abused sexually at a young age. It, it's almost, seems to me, it's almost a miracle that our society is able to thrive and survive. That's a heck of a lot of people. That, those are millions upon millions of Americans that were abused as kids. That, that's, that's just amazing. And, and is there any, any indication that those numbers are, you know, that ratio is expanding a bit, maybe the number is going lower as we become more aware of, of this abuse? Yes, yeah, so the good news that we have seen coming from um, the data with Jenna's Law is that uh, after educators have had a Jenna's Law training, they were about four times more likely to report a child sexual abuse case versus their pre-training careers. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is really good because we want intervention as soon as possible, not delayed disclosure, because the trend generally is that it's very difficult for children and youth to tell if this has happened. And so uh, we want not only the prevention, but we want 100% of kids to be able to tell right away and not wait till they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And some people have lived their whole life and they've never told and they've never gotten help and healing. I was about to say. Because, you know, if you divvy up, you you blend the one in four girls and one in six boys, you wind up, you know, the median is one in five. So if properly prosecuted, that means 20% of the American population should be behind bars or, or be deemed as child predators or, you know, have that uh, child 
abuser you know, tag on them or they're a predator. Uh, and that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's something, a lot of it is falling between, um, you know, uh, between the lines and, um, and it's not being prosecuted. And on the prosecutorial side, and, and actually making these people who are abusing kids pay, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your opinion of that? It doesn't seem like we're doing a good job of that. No, and there's a lot of factors that really play into that. Um, systemically, if you look, we see, um, so from a national perspective, the conviction rate uh, for child sex offenders is at a less than 10%. And one Jeez. of the reasons for that is is because a lot of these predators are very skilled at what they do. And so in offender studies, they'll tell you, how they were able to manipulate the family or the youth and how they were able to silence that child to get them not to tell. And many times these offenders, it's the same people. They have um, an average of nine victims. And then you've seen the serial cases in the news with uh, Larry Nassar, with the, you know, the gymnastics and all the other cases that have come out. And then so some of them will have hundreds of victims. And so um, part of why the conviction is so low is because of the delayed disclosure. Okay. We're not seeing children and youth reporting right away, which is why Jenna's Law helps to increase that reporting to get them to tell. I guess Jenna Quinn, Jenna's Law here in Texas, named after her. She's a child sex abuse survivor and an expert in child predators. Are these child predators using the videos and pictures that we take of our kids and share with family? If so, how's that happening? So there's this new term called sharenting, and this is when parents or caregivers share their parenting with the internet, generally on some social media platform. And so we really want uh, caregivers and parents to just give a second look and think twice before they post a photo of their child. What what information are they sharing of that child or youth um, with the internet world? Because once a photo is posted online, you know, you essentially lose control of that picture. It can be shared, saved, it can be altered, and it can be printed by essentially anyone. So we really want people to just think twice before they share. Less is more when it comes to sharing photos of, you know, the most precious resource that we have is our children. And so we really want to do what we can to protect them. How is it nefariously being used to, because the concern is that they will find our kids and, and communicate with their kids. How are they going about doing that? Yeah. So that's part of the concern. There's so many different concerns and I know our time is limited to go over all of them. I do have more information on my, on my website. We have free child safety videos on uh, Jenna Quinn. Dot org. So feel free to visit my website for more materials. But one, if a child or youth does have their own access to the Internet or their own social media accounts or they're in gaming apps, what these predators will try to do is there they will go. try to find what is the child's interest? There what does go. the child enjoy? What are they into? And what they will do is they will try to befriend that child or youth They'll start liking, they'll start commenting, they'll start complimenting them, giving them attention, maybe giving them advice. I've seen cases where they they offer cheats to games 
and help them get uh-huh. ahead so in different UN. levels of game. Yeah. There's all sorts of different ways where they can try to establish a relationship with that child. I get it. Yeah, through the gaming community. That's an, that's the easy access. Got it. Thank you, Ms. Q. Appreciate your time and I look forward to our next conversation. Give me the website one more time. The website is jennaquinn.org. Easily enough. J- Jenna Quinn, my guest. Thank you. This is the Sergio Show. I've heard it said before that when you post something, you upload a picture, video, any message, tweet, things like that, and you delete it, it never truly disappears ever from the Internet. Andrew Sternkey, my guest, he's the leader, he's the CEO of, of Jurist Disputes and Investigations. What is it that you do for a living, Andrew? Yeah, so we do uh, private investigations and cybersecurity work, so mm. we specialize uh, more on the cyber investigation side, and so we do digital forensics penetration testing there you go. and so you're an expert in digging up all those comments or pictures that people want to take back and somewhere out there they're still in, in cyberspace so how does that work andrew i mean you, you try to go back delete pictures video history they close out accounts but like when you upload information pictures or, or comments what happens in cyberspace and why is it that you really can't bleach that stuff yeah so so the problem is uh, once data flows out onto uh, cyberspace or the internet, um, the problem is is you no longer have control of it. So even if you uh, try to delete a profile off of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or whatnot, they may attempt to delete it also on their end, thing that is deleted. But the unfortunate thing is... Um, because of various data breaches and also, you know, within those companies, they have servers that back up other servers. And so they would have to go through all their various databases and uh, servers to eliminate your information. And the unfortunate thing is that is suspected of not happening. So that's just on the company side. Then on the other aspect is, is you know, anyone can take a, a screenshot of your profile or, or, or grab the da- data that way. And they keep that information, you know, within their own servers or databases. And, and as you can see, it, it's just a rabbit hole. So let's say no one took a picture of your comment or your video or picture. The only thing that might happen to you that would make you vulnerable to get that information back out there would be if the redundant servers, the backup servers, they need to be used again and whatever data they have at a specific date needs to be onboarded to replace everything that was compromised. So in in a situation like that, your old information would immediately be onboarded to the Internet again, right? Correct. How often does that happen? We we really don't know. Um, and, and, And that's the concerning thing is that, you know, once data is out there, it's out there. And so we just have the mentality, especially, you know, at my firm is having a, a, a zero trust mentality w- with data. Um, and, and, and that's something that every consumer should do. Now, some of the protections that you could do, um, you know, if you want more privacy is, you know, use a VPN. It's a virtual um, private network instead of your regular uh, Internet. That way, uh, your IP address and, and, and other information is masked from outsiders that are, that are trying to get your geographical location or your um, identification. 
the second thing is use encrypted to encrypted endpoint messaging, such as a signal element. And then another thing that we advise people to do is use uh, two-factor authentication. Uh, that's something that, um, you know, helps verify your identity so hackers and spammers can't uh, try to hack into your um, various accounts and, and, and grab, up, grab up your data. Man, I would imagine that your line of work, and Andrew Sternke, he's CEO of Juris Disputes Investigations, and Andrew and his crew, uh, I imagine they're experts in digging up information buried in, in cyberspace. Now, give me an example of the typical client that comes calling for you. Is it someone looking for family information or, or is it something more, um, you know, corporate or maybe even uh, in legal cases or in criminal investigatory cases? I mean, who comes calling for your services to, to dig up yeah. information? Yeah, so so our clients vary from, you know, legal to corporate. So just one example is, uh, you know, we're having a situation where uh, someone's trying to find the assets of another individual, and they're trying to hide the assets via cryptocurrency. Well, recently we just found $1.6 million that another party was trying to hide. Uh, you know, then we have an, a situation where... Uh, someone has been cyber stalking another individual. You know, they call law enforcement. It's kind of tough for law enforcement to do. So we step in and we eventually found the cyber stalker and then gathered up the evidence and then uh, gave that over to law okay. enforcement for criminal prosecution and then also to our clients. Yeah, and, and then on the corporate side, uh, you know, we respond to uh, cyber attacks. And so we send our incident response team to uh, start protecting all their uh, network systems and whatnot, and then do digital forensics of actually how did this all happen all right. so it doesn't happen again. It's a pleasure, Andrew. Obviously, we'll be calling you again because uh, the future is now, and this is all the future, all the investigations online. Appreciate your time taking us to school for a few minutes. Andrew Sternkey with Jurious Disputes Investigations. He's an expert in cyber investigation. This is The Sergio Show. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a multiple In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. We've heard for several days now that President Joe Biden, man, he really likes tapping into the emergency oil supply that we have in this country. He's, he's going to the cupboard and starting to empty what we're supposed to be storing for an emergency. Tim Snyder from MandatorEconomics.com joining me today. Okay, but so let's do a little bit of history real quick. Take us to school. How big is this strategic oil reserve that we have? 
How big is it as far as capacity? How full is it supposed to be? And and how is it supposed to be used in an emergency? God forbid a nuclear holocaust or I don't know, for some reason, everybody in OPEC doesn't want to send anything more this way. As some world calamity, I don't know, a meteor hits the planet, something like that. It's supposed to be used in an emergency. So how big is it supposed to be? And then how does it work? Like how much fuel does it provide us for how many days in an emergency? Yes, sir. Well, first and foremost, the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, has a capacity of 705 million barrels of crude oil. We traditionally keep about 600 and maybe 605 to 650 million barrels in there. That's that's pretty much static. I can tell you back in 2020, we had 637, maybe 0.1 or 2 million barrels uh, in March uh, when we started the pandemic, the whole shutdown of the pandemic. And crude oil prices started to drop. President Trump asked Congress to add 77 million additional barrels to the SPR to top the barrel, top the tanks off for one reason, and that's because the price of crude oil was between 15 and 20 dollars a barrel. The Democrats turned that down flat-handed just because they didn't want to give him a, a victory. But I think this whole this whole scenario with President Biden has been in the works for a very long time. The next thing that we look at is when President Biden took office, there were right at 600 million barrels of crude oil in the SPR. Since he's taken office, he's committed back in November of 2021, 50 million barrel tranche to be released, the 180 million barrel tranche in March of this year, and of course yet the day before yesterday or three days ago, the 15 million barrel tranche, which technically 15 million barrels is less than one day's demand for crude oil in the United States as that stands at about 20 million barrels a day. So the facts are these. When the president finishes his current drawdown numbers that he is committed to, we'll have about 350 million barrels, not 600 million barrels, in our strategic petroleum reserves. And that represents about 27 days of supply if OPEC just shuts us off. That, my friend, is what I consider a national security risk. It is. And, man, I recall President Trump trying to top off that SPR. And back then, if I'm correct, I think all the Democrats, the oil-hating Democrats, and the corporate media carrying the water for the leftists in this country, they were all parroting, quack, 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 saying, subsidy, subsidy, oil subsidy, quack, oil subsidy. That's all they were saying. And that's how they shut it down back then. It didn't pass. Instead of filling up when it was super cheap back then. How do we refill it now? I'm God forbid something bad happened and we get caught with our pants down. No vehicles run. How do we? How long is it going to take to refill, and how much might it cost us now? Well, at the very, <laughs> at the very least, if OPEC continues to do what OPEC's doing, and and by virtue of us giving the mantle for making being the price maker, okay, the market maker, back to OPEC. In other words, they're the ones that control market share and price. We find ourselves in a much more difficult position because if we were to go knock on the door of the Saudis right now or OPEC for what it's worth, we have so offended them with Joe Biden's tactics that they may not come answer the door. Okay, that's number one. Number two, they have put such restrictions on and increased the cost of production here in the United States that back 
five years ago, six years ago, $35 or $40 crude oil was productive. Today, it takes $80 minimum to be productive, and I'm talking profitable. Um, and that's a real issue. So uh, the numbers continue to change. There, we, you know, and, and I keep asking this question, and nobody can give me a straight answer. And me as the economist, I really need to know this. What's that criti- critical benchmark? What's that fail-safe number in the SPR that says, okay, we got to get this refilled no matter what. Yeah. We've got to go out to the market and pull it in. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think they care. They don't care. I don't and, think they do either. Yeah, I think you're and right. I God, that's the point. Lord help us if something bad happens, and we must tap into that in order to survive. Tim Snyder, MatadorEconomics.com. We are at the point now where with less than a month's supply to run the trucks in this country, I think that's the only thing that's going to run is trucks, diesel power trucks to deliver food and medicine nationwide. Everybody else is going to be like in China, riding around in bicycles everywhere for Lord knows how long if something bad were to happen. Well, and unfortunately, I hate to add this metric into it, but remember when we were told just a month ago or two, a month and a half ago, that President Biden had settled the rail strike. One yeah. of the major railroads came back and said, yeah, our no, membership doesn't like the agreement. Still up in the air. And now we find out that there is no agreement necessarily. If this group fails, if this group turns it down, then the, the cannonball continues to run down the, down the road. And our, our delivery infrastructure here in the United States, a transportation infrastructure, grinds to a halt. That's another issue. The way I saw it, trying to avoid that rails shut down due to the strike is just trying to influence the election. Just like Joe Biden, he told the Saudis, hey, could you please hold off and turn off the spigot just a little bit, maybe after November 8th, you know, after the election, you know, kind of help me out, bro. Help me out. Here's a fist bump. It's the same thing. The only thing with the, the unions, with a rail, they're stuck right now in some type of mediation negotiation, which is forced which will take this way into December, I think. They, they have to wait. They have to right. c- continue negotiating after the election. So just kick it down the road so we still have pain, possible pain related to all this in several months. Tim Snyder, MatadorEconomics.com. And real quick, for working people running around town everywhere right now, tell folks how this Biden administration slow walks the permitting process that makes it very unattractive for us to produce our own oil right now. Right now, the permitting, not only have they, have they they're slow walking the whole process, they're nitpicking the applications and the things that normally would take about two years to develop are now taking maybe four or five to get developed. That's number one. Number two, they raise the fees and they're making it more difficult for financing. They're, they're putting pressure. And we saw the, the Rashida Tlaib comments when she was questioning Jamie Dimon, will you, you know, will you continue to fund, you know, fossil fuel stock programs? And he said, absolutely yes. So that's that's what's going on. Thank you, Tim. Have a wonderful weekend, brother. Good to talk again. You bet, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Look for his newsletter, matadoreconomics.com. That's Tim Snyder. This is The Sergio Show.